Hello, and welcome to Mayo Talks, a brand new podcast from Mayo Clinic, featuring expert insight on today's medical issues. You can learn more about us at mayotalks.com. This week, we'll be highlighting talks from the annual Selected Topics in Internal Medicine Conference held in sunny Kauai, Hawaii. Today's talk, Asthma Update, presented by Dr. Gerald Volchek. Good morning, everybody. I'd first just like to thank Drs. Mock and Bundrick uh, for the invitation to be a part of this course in, in such a stunning location, and also uh, to thank all of you for all of the great care that you provide for your patients throughout the year. You know, medicine is constantly changing, and it could be very difficult, but it really is a noble undertaking, and, and thanks to all of you. I don't have any financial disclosures or conflicts of interest. Now, if you're feeling just a little sluggy this morning, that, that's not out of the ordinary. This is going to be my most complex slide, and it's looking at the ease of awakening for a 7 a.m. talk. And as we go across the week, we start off on Monday, you know, things are feeling good, feeling good through the week, doing okay. But here we are at Thursday, and things are a little bit different. Um, now, as you notice, Friday isn't on here, and now I realize why we turn in our slides early. I think it, the picture was declared inappropriate for a professional audience, so um, hopefully things won't be uh, too bad tomorrow. But what we want to do over the next half hour is go over some of the updates for the management of asthma based on the Nas National Expert Panel uh, Part 3, and also the Global Initiative on Asthma, or GINA guidelines, which were updated here in 2016. The emphasis is going to be on the medicines, too, that we have for asthma, ones we've had for a while, and also the new ones. But in particular, I want to emphasize the correct use of the older ones we've had, because I think people get, get confused as far as the potency of the different inhalers. And it's very important to make sure that you're using the right one, depending on the severity of the uh, asthma in the patient. And then also some clinical pearls. What I'd <clears throat> really like you to leave with is just a practical checklist of things that you want to ask your asthma patient as they're coming through to make sure you're doing everything you can to optimize their management. And the focus is going to be on adherence, technique, and this mnemonic that I call air smog that hits all the primary comorbidities that could be playing a role uh, with the patient's asthma. So we're going to start with two questions, and these will be patient response questions. We're not going to give the correct answer now, but spoiler alert, at the end of the talk, the exact same two questions are going to be asked, and hopefully we're going to see some improvement in the answers over the half hour. So this first patient is a 32-year-old female who reports symptoms of asthma three days out of the week with nighttime symptoms weekly. So kind of falling in that mild persistent asthma category. She's using her albuterol four to six times per week. On exam, she looks good. The lungs sound good. Her baseline lung function looks good. You assess for contributors uh, for asthma using the air smog pneumonic, which we will be going over, and you decide to start an inhaler. She has not been on controller inhalers previously, 
which would be the most appropriate to start in this patient? And then there's your uh, choices if you could mark which one you would start this uh, 32-year-old female on. Great, okay, and now we'll go to the next patient. A 47-year-old man with a history of moderate persistent asthma continues to be symptomatic despite the use of a medium-dose inhaled steroid long-acting bronchodilator. He's also on Montelukast or Singulair, 10 milligrams a day. You assess and manage possible contributors using, again, the air, air smog mnemonic and also feel that his adherence and inhaler technique is adequate. Because he's not controlled, which medicine would be beneficial to add? And again, there are your options. Good, it looks like we have a tie. We'll see if that's uh, broken uh, at the end of the half hour. So as far as the diagnosis of asthma, not a lot of changes in the usual ways we look at it. Still a 20% drop with the methacholine challenge is consistent with asthma, or an increase in somebody with a normal baseline FEV1 of 13% with the use of a bronchodilator. Classically, you will see a decreased FEV1 to FEC ratio, but that does not have to be there. The test that's getting uh, the most uh, study and interest is exhaled nitric oxide and its role in the management of asthma. Fortunately, it's a pretty easy test to perform. The patient basically inhales to total lung capacity and then breathes out at a measured rate for six to 10 seconds and it's kind of monitored to make sure they stay at the right rate, and right then your exhaled nitric oxide is measured. It'll be elevated in eosinophilic lung diseases, of which asthma is the prototype, so it'll also be elevated in other eosinophilic diseases also, such as ABPA, or a person with COPD that happens to have an eosinophilic component to their COPD. It'll be normal or low in more neutrophil-mediated disease, like your classic COPD or alpha-1 antitrypsin cystic fibrosis. The sensitivity and specificity is pretty good, around the 0.85 uh, mark, and it does correlate well, so elevations correlating with bronchial hyperresponsiveness, response to beta agonist, but it doesn't have a great correlation with just the total FEV1 or always just with symptoms. Where it really correlates the best, though, is if it's elevated, those people tend to really have a favorable response to inhaled corticosteroids. So if somebody's already on inhaled corticosteroids, still has a very high exhaled nitric oxide, they may benefit from a bump up in that. Or if they're not any on the time, that would likely be very helpful to start. With all of these tests, though, the clinical picture still has to be taken into account. And in one of the reviews, I think this summed it up well when 
it was said single measures cannot be used to assess, manage, and treat asthma. You really have to look at the whole picture when it comes to these tests. Now, if you're doing all the right things, you have to remember, and things aren't getting better, maybe we're not dealing with asthma. We don't really have time to go through the long list of possible things that may be mimicking it. But just be aware, things aren't going according to, to plan. Other things may be going on. And of these, vocal cord dysfunction or sub, some type of upper airway obstruction tend to be more commonly seen clinically. And then always to keep in mind CHF and pulmonary embolism. So once we know, though, we're dealing with asthma, what are our overall goals? The expert panel outlines you know, basic things, uh, things that make sense. We want to reduce impairment and reduce risk. So we want people to be able to breathe well, lead active lives, not have to rely on their albuterol inhaler all the time. And then also, we want to be able to keep them out of the ER and out of the hospital. So how do we do this? I think this study kind of serves as a, a backbone for what we're going over uh, this morning. And this was a study out of the Netherlands it was actually a pediatric study, but it also applies to adults, looking at 142 children that were referred to a specialty asthma center because their asthma was not well controlled despite the use of inhaled corticosteroids. They have a national system there, and if the primary care is not getting the results they want, they go then to the specialty center. At the specialty center, they studied this group, and they looked at specific measures or specific things to see, well, what was the cause for this uncontrolled asthma? And the things they focused on were inhaler technique, adherence, exposure to environmental triggers, comorbidities, and was it really true therapy-resistant asthma? So they assessed and corrected all of these things and then followed them over six months made sure they were stable, and then looked back to see what percentage of these things or what played the biggest role in causing them not initially to be controlled. So you look at all of these things, we think, oh, this is oh, a lot of therapy-resistant asthma, but that wasn't the case at all. So out of 142 uh, children, it was only 2.8% or four of the patients that had true therapy-resistant asthma. And all of these others improved by really getting back to the basics. The most common problem was poor adherence, 37%. Then comorbidities came in at about 20%. And ongoing exposure to environmental triggers, around 30%. So again, getting back to, to the things that are part of basic management without having to go to real higher doses of medicines or some of these newer biologics. So what are the comorbidities that contribute to asthma? It's hard, you know, you're seeing patients one after another, asthma that's not well controlled, but if you have a real stepwise, easy approach, and I like to use this mnemonic and do it with all of my asthma patients that aren't doing as well as they should, you'll be able to focus in on the things that they need to get under control and maybe be able to get by with less medicine and certainly be controlled better. So I'll just write air smog down on, on my sheet and go through this. So just, and again, it'll only take you a couple minutes to do this with the patient. 
you know, look at possible allergen exposure, in particular pets, dust mites, molds, and is there a real seasonal component to their, their asthma? Is there an irritant uh, exposure or ongoing infection? And then the R is for rhinitis sinusitis, and of the bunch, this probably plays the biggest role in causing poor control of the asthma. Whenever you're treating asthma or treating something in the lungs, you also have to treat the nose and sinus. This is all connected, and it really is a united airway. And if you're able to control what's going on there, it's going to make it a lot easier to control what's going on in, in the lungs. Other contributors to finish the mnemonic, of course, smoking, sleep apnea, and stress, so a lot of S's there. Medications, particular beta blockers. The good news is not all asthmatic patients that are started on beta blockers are all of a sudden going to have poor asthma control, but there clearly is a group where the addition of the beta blocker starts causing a lot of problems for them. So if somebody's not doing well, they're having more exacerbations, they're not as well controlled, double check that med list. Occupational exposure sometimes get lost in the shuffle. And there's a whole host of things that can cause problems for people. You know, it's just so simply ask, oh, what is your work environment like? And then gastroesophageal reflux. Again, not everybody with reflux will have a worsening of their asthma, but there is definitely a group that does. If there's uncontrolled reflux, that needs to also be uh, get, got under control to help uh, get the overall uh, asthma management improved. And then, of course, adherence and inhaler technique which you almost have to just think about as a given, as something that you have to ask about every time they come in. So the National Expert Panel uh, divides asthma according to severity, and I think a lot of people are familiar with the intermittent versus the persistent asthma. And then they base where treatment should be on the severity of the asthma. The intermittent asthma is pretty easy to handle. These are people that are just having symptoms by the rule of twos, basically. Less than two days out of the week, less than two nights out of the month, and using their inhaler uh, rarely. All, of, all they need is what's called step one treatment. And step one is just the use of the short-acting albuterol uh, as needed. As far as the albuterol, just to be aware, there's also now a ProAir Respi Click, and this is a breath-activated autohaler. So the patient just has to open the click, and once they start breathing in, the medicine automatically then activates. So for the person that really has trouble coordinating the meter dose inhaler, the Respi Click makes it a lot easier for them to, to get the medicine in. For those that don't handle albuterol well because of the side effects like tremulousness or fast heart rate, there's another option, leave albuterol or Zopinex. This is just the R form of albuterol, and it kind of cuts out the part of the molecule that's associated with the side effects of the albuterol. So you're using half the dose, but getting the same amount of therapeutic benefit, and it's available in both inhaler form and in nebulizer form. Get my hyperlink back, there we go. And then the, we now get into the persistent asthmatics, and I think it's the mild persistent that tend to fall through the cracks the most. This was like the first patient uh, vignette that we talked about. 
So they're having symptoms more than a couple days of the week, but not every day. Most weeks, they're having nighttime problems with their, their asthma, but their lung function may be normal and they sound okay on exam. According to the expert panel, they should really be on step two treatment or some type of controller treatment with the low dose inhaled steroids being the primary one used, but also leukotriene uh, blockers can be used in this group too as a controller. And also too, allergen immunotherapy. For the people that really seem to have more of an allergic component to their uh, asthma, allergy shots um, can be uh, uh, very beneficial. Some of the question comes up though, okay, low dose inhaled steroid. What does that really mean? Um, and which one do I pick? I think we all kind of get in the habit of, well, they're all kind of the same, and it's, isn't it pretty much two puffs twice a day for, for all of them? But that, that's not the case at all. This is getting more complicated because there's more of them available now. They all come in different dosages, and they also all have different potencies. So one puff of one inhaler is not equal to one puff of another inhaler. And for all of you that, that see a lot of asthma or dealing with asthma, I'd really recommend, you, I have to have one, a little cheat sheet that reminds you, okay, what is a low, medium, or high dose for this particular inhaler? And this is coming up more and more because as insurances change, people's coverage change, the inhaler that they were on for years is now no longer covered, so you have to find something else or you'll be told there's only one or two inhalers that are covered, and then you have to make sure you're coming up with the right dose for that one, even if it's an inhaler you may not use that much or, or be familiar with. And you know, the EpiPen got a lot of the press for just being grossly overpriced and how that just got, got ticked up over the years. But the same things happen with inhaled steroids. These are extremely expensive. And if if this is not getting covered, there's no way the patient is going to be paying out of pocket for these. They're going $300, $400, $500 for one inhaler. So, you know, just to give an example of this, let's just look at Qvar Beclomethazone. Comes in two doses, the 40 and the 80. Let's say you prescribe the 40. Already, just the low dose is four puffs of the medicine. And, you know, compliance is always an issue. If you have somebody with more severe asthma and they're on the 40 of the QVAR, they're going to need about 10, 14 puffs of that to get to where they need to be to get the asthma under control. Similarly, with this flunicillide or Aerospan, and this is a relatively newer one on the block, the nice thing is it comes with an integrated spacer. So the spacer is already built into the inhaler, but it's not a super potent inhaled steroid. Again, four puffs of it is just at what would be considered the low dose. So again, not an option for somebody with more moderate or severe asthma. Now to complicate this just a little bit more, there's two types of fluticasone out there now. Fluticasone propionate, which we're very familiar with, that's Flovent and the steroid that's in Advair, but also fluticasone furoate, which is the commercial product Arnuity. And you would think, oh, well, I'm just going to order fluticasone. You have to make the distinction here because these are two distinctly different medicines. When you think of, you know, fluticasone furoate, for example, you think, okay, that's just the prodrug. It just breaks off, and fluticasone itself is just the active component anyways. 
but that's not the case with, with either of those. The molecule stays together and binds at the receptor together. This fluticasone furoate or arnuity is a much larger molecule. It has a lot higher binding affinity and a lot more potency. So there isn't even a low dose of this medicine that, that's recommended. And because of its higher affinity, higher potency, just one puff of the 100 microgram of this arnuity is a medium dose. And the 200, it's just one inhalation is the high dose. So again, if you get in the habit, oh, two puffs twice a day of, of everything, you know, that's just not going to cut it when we're dealing with some of these newer medicines here. Now going on then to the, I'm just going to lump together the moderate and severe. So these are the people that are clearly having problems. They're having symptoms daily, most nights, a lot of exacerbations, decreased uh, lung function. And the expert panel then has just kind of a updosing, uh, cascading increase of medications for, for these groups. So once we're out of that mild persistent, then we're in the medium and high dose of the inhaled steroids. And then we also start getting into the combination products uh, where you have the inhaled steroid combined with the long-acting beta agonist. New to the game is teotropium or spireva, which is now an add-on for step four and above. And then we have uh, three primary biologics that are used for the more severe uh, asthmatics. I just want to quickly also go over the combined products because there's new ones there. So these are the combined inhaled steroids with the long-acting beta agonist. Really should not be a first line for somebody with mild asthma. This is somebody that despite looking at all the, the facets of their asthma still not controlled on just an inhaled steroid. And again, we have the same issues that we were dealing with with all of the inhaled steroids. The thing I really want you to know about this is the dosing of the long-acting beta agonist for each strength of these medicines are the same, okay? And they're at maximal dose. So you can't double the dose of these medicines if somebody's not doing well, because then they're gonna get way too much of the long-acting beta agonist part of the medicine. So if somebody isn't controlled despite being on the higher dose of these based on the steroid component, you have to add something else or, or, or go another direction. You can't double up on, on this. And again, with the, uh, the Brio, which uh, is the fluticasone furoate, um, it, this is just a once a day uh, uh, medicine because of the higher potency of the steroid. And then it's coupled with a different long acting uh, bronchodilator, this Volantarol but it's just one puff once a day as opposed to the other dry powder combination which are one puff twice a day and the meter dose inhalers of these that are two puffs twice a day. So getting on to the new ones, the teotropium, um, this was approved in the U.S. in 2015 and this is basically a long-acting uh, anticholinergic and it's used, again, as an add-on once you're getting on those higher steps. To complicate this a little bit more, it comes in two forms. There's the hand inhaler, which has been around for a while now. 
And the way this works is out of a blister pack, the patient takes the capsule, they have to put the capsule in their hand inhaler, they close it, which punctures the capsule, that then allows them to breathe in the, the dry powder. So if somebody has a lot of trouble with their fingers and may not be able to coordinate that, you have to take that into account. The other form is the Respimat, which is basically a soft mist inhaler. It does, re, you know, as they say, some assembly required. Um, this is one that comes with a cartridge, and you have to put the cartridge in the case and then, set, and then close it, and then there's a button to push to have this soft mist come out. So what I'm trying to really say with this is that patients are going to get confused by all these different types of inhalers. And unless you're able to go over it with them or somebody in your office, ideally, is able to go over it with them, they're just going to give up on it. Now, just so that you're aware of the biologics that are available for the severe asthmatics based on their phenotype, Zolaire's been around for about 15 years now for people with a, a moderate to severe persistent allergic asthma. And the two new ones now are Nucala and Syncare, which are anti-IL-5s. IL-5 is basically the water for the eosinophils. You cut off the water, you cut off the eosinophils. So people that have the, what's called eosinophilic severe asthma phenotype likely will benefit from uh, this. We've been using uh, Nucala quite a bit in, in this group and overall are seeing significant improvement. From a safety standpoint, just so that you're aware, last year, uh, this past summer, in the New England Journal of Medicine, there were two uh, big papers on the safety of the combination inhaled corticosteroid long-acting uh, beta agonist medicines. And the reason this was done, it was actually a mandate from the FDA that all four of the major pharmaceutical companies that manufacture these medicines need to prove its safety against just inhaled corticosteroids alone. And this is based on the SMART, <clears throat> SMART trial from before, excuse me, <clears throat> um, where there appeared to be increased serious adverse events in people that were on the long-acting bronchodilator. It didn't account, though, whether or not they were receiving the inhaled corticosteroids. And it's felt that if people are on the combination, the safety is taken care of, but there were some questions about it, and that's why these studies were done. For the sake of time, I'm going to cut to the chase of these two studies, as they're both almost identical. And one of them looked at the budesonide formoterol combination versus just budesonide, and the other looked at the fluticasone salmeterol versus just fluticasone. So basically, Palmacord and Advair versus just the inhaled steroids associated with those. Both studies had around 12,000 patients, so it's really a lot of numbers. It was done over approximately 26 weeks, and the number of serious asthma-related events was essentially the same, around 35 to 40, depending on the study, in both groups. So what they called non-inferiority of the combination product was achieved, meaning it's safe, it's okay. And interestingly, in both of these studies, the amount of exacerbations on the combination product was less than the inhaled steroid alone. So again, just to go over the, what we've been talking about as far as the GINA uh, updates, 
This fluticasone furoate can be used uh, as an option for step three. The spireva or teotropium is an add-on once you're at step four and above. We have the biologics for the more severe asthmatics. And they also commented on step-down treatment. You know, as physicians, we're really good at adding medicines on and trying this and that, but not always so good at, at taking them off. Uh, but Matt Rank, uh, who is at Mayo Rochester now in Mayo, Arizona, has been at the forefront of a lot of the work looking at the step-down uh, treatment of, of asthma. And we'll get to a slide on that in just a second. Again, adherence is key. It's a major problem. It's estimated maybe 20 to 30% of people actually use their inhalers and use them correctly, which is really pretty uh, dismal. A lot of work's being done to try and improve this, but there's no magic bullet. They're looking at electronic means, et cetera, et cetera. It still comes down to us being aware that, that it's an issue and working as much as we can one-on-one -on -one and bringing it up with the patient and involving the rest of the office in, into helping uh, with this. We also need to make sure they're using their inhalers correctly, especially with all these different types out there. And again, it's critical that, that we get other people in the office involved with that because it's impossible for a physician to try and do all of this adequately and still see uh, people in a timely manner. As far as this step-down uh, therapy goes, it, it's very clear you don't want to just stop somebody that's well-controlled. What you need to do is do it in a stepwise fashion with the goal to decrease by about 25 to 50 percent every three to six months as long as they're well-controlled. So if somebody's very well-controlled on an inhaler, two puffs twice a day, you go down two, maybe two puffs in the morning, one in the evening and then from there to two puffs once a day or one twice a day. Even once you get to the lowest dose, though, it does appear for the majority of the asthmatics if you go from even low to off in about a six to eight month time frame, there's a good chance they'll, they'll have a flare. There appears to be uh, definite cost savings with step down. Uh, this was finally proven uh, with a study. And the good news is, even with this decreased cost, decreased use of medication, control was maintained in those that were stepped down and those that stayed at, the, at their regular dose. As far as asthma and pregnancy and use of the inhalers, this past year was a good year and that no news is, is good news. So nothing new that, that's been a problem. Uh, fluticasone propionate or the Advair flow vent did have a large study with about 5,000 pregnant women uh, that were looked at, and there did not appear to be any increased risk to the mom or the baby uh, with that. Realize, though, that teotropium or spireva, the new one, has not been studied in pregnancy yet. There's safety in animal data, but human data is still lacking. So with that, let's uh, finish with the two questions that we started with. Um, again, the 32-year-old female with the mild persistent uh, asthma, good exam, which inhaler would be most appropriate?
Right, the fluticasone propionate, the 110 micrograms, uh, the furoate at 200 would actually put it in, in the high dose, the budesonide would be in the high dose, and you wouldn't start with the combined, excellent. And then the second, the 47-year-old man, moderate persistent asthma, still symptomatic, which would be most uh, beneficial to add. Right, and we talked about, you know, increasing to a high dose though inhaled steroid LABA would also be a, a reasonable approach. Uh, if possible though, you would probably want to not go to the high dose uh, inhaled steroid if you could avoid it. But both of those are reasonable, but I would say Spireva has the edge. So to summarize, uh, you want to make sure your diagnosis is secure. You could assess the patient quickly looking at adherence, technique, and just do that air smog uh, checklist. Make yourself just a little cheat sheet that has the potencies of these uh, different inhalers, and I think that will, will just help put everything together for the, for the management. So thanks a lot for your time and attention. Thanks for listening. You can find additional podcasts and other videos from Selected Topics in Internal Medicine at mailtalks.com. Mail Talks is a copyrighted program from Mayo Clinic.